Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. I'm Laura Bysis. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, listeners, uh, this is Laura's first time on the show, but she is uh, not a random guest like so many of our other random guests who we love very much. Uh, Laura is a pop size staffer. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself? Great. Thanks, Rachel. Um, yeah, my name is Laura Bysis. I have been a science news writer at PopSci for exactly one year. Um, I cover little bits of everything. Um, from archaeology to poop to biology to climate change, you name it. Sarah Kylie tells me to write it, and I write it. Um, <laughs> I, before PopSci, I worked at NBC News for about 10 years and then went back to grad school when I decided I wanted to focus on science journalism a little bit, um, a little bit more, and got my master's degree from Columbia. I'm also, my kind of weird fact about myself, I am a marathon swimmer and can swim. Oh, my gosh. Where, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can swim very, very long distances. And one thing that's cool about marathon swimming is there is a ton of science in it. So I have to think about tides and wind, weather, sunscreen, um, relieving oneself when they're swimming, food, all sorts of things. So it's kind of a perfect sport for somebody like me who loves the water and also loves thinking about science. <laughs> you just uh, love confounding variables. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I say marathon swimmers need to go from type A to type Z on, you know, you know, the flip of a coin because you have to be type A in your planning and your training and all of that. But then like one variable shifts and you need to just kind of go with it. That's where the type Z comes in. You know, if the wind changes or if 
tides may be a little bit behind or somebody in your crew gets sick, certain things like that. So that's kind of like the fun exercise of it is going from like (laughs) the rigid training schedule to, "Ah, all right, let's go with it. You know, I think that would destroy my psyche, but I love (laughs) that you love it. Um, I could keep asking you questions about this all day, but instead, let's get it to the show. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, swimming, the English channel or whatever, (laughs) etc. And then we decide which one we absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Asterisk. Not really. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? Okay. Um, Well, my tease is that in the Bronze Age, people used a material that fell from the sky to make stuff, tools, jewelry, you name it. Great. I mean, that sounds really practical. Yeah. Um, Reduce, reuse, recycle. Exactly. From the sky. Um, Laura, what's your tease? So if you think waxing your body hair is bad, how about plucking your armpit hair? Um, That was a practice that was par for the course in Roman Great Britain. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't like that. Um, okay, cool. My tease is uh, that now that leprosy is back, baby, um, I'm going to talk about why this disease looms so large in our cultural imagination. So let's see, where shall we begin, Sir Kylie? I would love to hear about these sky materials. Sky materials, yep, happy to talk about them. Um, Very exciting stuff. So, yep, Uh, we're going to start in the past. We're going to go back to the Bronze Age. So um, this is kind of generally around 3000 BCE to 1000 BCE. Obviously, in different parts of the world, they were playing with bronze at different times. Like, I think in modern-day Turkey, they were playing with it as early as, like, 6500 BCE. But generally, 3000 BCE is when it started moving through the mid Middle East, like up into the Mediterranean and into Europe. So generally speaking, bronze was happening. <laughs> and this was a step up from stones, obviously the Stone Age, which came before. <laughs> oh yeah, so humans during this time graduated from rock tools to metal tools, um, namely, duh, bronze. Um, so you can make bronze from melting tin and copper together and you can make some pretty neat, strong stuff, um, especially weaponry. Um, bronze is quite a bit stronger than just copper and things like bronze spears, swords, shields, armors, axes, halberds, daggers, bows, arrows, clubs, and mallets all became commonplace, um, replacing (laughs) or complementing the previous era's stone tools. So pretty exciting stuff for... I feel like you you could be a, like, Bronze Age QVC... Hosts. Oh, I would. Oh, that, absolutely. Just that, that run of tools you just gave was really just perfect. Yeah. Please continue. Taking <laughs> out my Bronze Age credit card right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. The bronze card. Um, but yeah, we love. Um, so, very exciting time to be a prehistoric human. Um, but obviously, today we know there's a lot of stuff that's stronger than bronze, and one of them is iron. Um, and we use a lot of iron in the modern world. Um, but and there's a ton of iron, actually, iron ore in on our planet. Um, but the problem is um, it doesn't work <laughs> as iron ore. It's it's just it doesn't work. It doesn't. Right. It's not what you want it to be. Um, like sure. the USGS puts reserves um, for the whole like globe at about 800 
billion tons of crude ore um, as of last year. So there's a ton, but uh, it's not usable. Um, and you to make it usable, you really have to know what you're doing. There's quite a science to it. So I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about the art of smelting iron, which is something I was trying to figure out all morning. Um, so, <laughs> so fast forward, after the Bronze Age came the Iron Age. So um, somewhere around like 1200 BCE to 600 BCE, again, people were messing with different metals at different times, at different places on the world. But this is a general estimation. Um, I mean, there's some prehistoric iron doodads that date back like way before this. But um, but this is around the time when people are figuring out, okay, this is how we smelt it. And so to make iron ore into usable iron, you have to heat it up like a, a lot, a lot more than bronze. And there were a bunch of different figures on the internet, but all of them are in the thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. Um, 3000 degrees Fahrenheit is one that sticks in my mind. So very, very, very hot. And you had to make these like brand new, better furnaces in which you'd heat up iron ore with charcoal. And, and when you did that, it would make a spongy lump of iron and slag that was then hammered to remove all of the slag, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. And then you'd have to keep heating this iron up um, in the bed of charcoal. You'd harden it, heat it, cool it, heat it, cool it, heat it rapidly over and over. And then you'd hammer it and heat it and you just keep doing this over and over and over again um, until it was in the shape that you desired. And so this was obviously not as easy as like making bronze, pouring it in a cast, and voila, here's your hammer, axe, you know, etc. Um, so these early iron things, like, didn't really look as refined necessarily as, like, you know, the peak Bronze Age tools, but they were stronger, um, which was important. Um, but there, are, there is iron that you exists, you know, out there in on this planet and elsewhere that exists in the metallic function it comes ready to use we love it um but it's not exactly easy to find um and one way that you can find iron that's ready to use is in meteors <laughs> so falling space rocks sometimes <laughs> held like a this magical tougher material um than you know anybody was able to make in the bronze age so Voila, we have meteoric iron. And so researchers as of late have been able to find out um, if ancient tools that came from this planet or from outer space. Um, and the way that that works is kind of taking a peek at the chemical composition. So um, one French researcher, Albert Jamal, perhaps, um, he in 2017, he like did a huge chemical analysis of a bunch of pre-Iron Age iron tools so we're talking about before anybody was smelting um people were still using iron and it's kind of like where the heck did they get this um because there is iron on earth but uh who smelt it smelt who it. Sm smelt <laughs> it yes it's been forged but not smelt that was the thing right it's, there's been forging iron for a long time but the smelting didn't come till later so we've got a mystery um, so he took all of these gadgets, which I'm going to give you another QVC list of. So we've got Egyptian beads from 3200 BCE, a dagger from Turkey, 2500 BCE, a pendant from Syria, 2300 BCE, axe from Syria, 1400 BCE, and several things from China, 1400 BCE, and then the dagger, bracelet, and headrest of King Tut, which was from 1350 BCE. So bunch of cool stuff all before uh, smelting iron was in any of those places. So he checked them out um, using, let's see, 
a portable X-ray fluorescent spectrometer, which sounds very fun. Um, so that to determine if the pre-Iron Age iron treasures um, used space rocks or were simply smelted before smelting was a big deal, he and his team chemically looked at the ratios between iron, nickel, and cobalt to determine the metal's origin. Telluric iron or iron native to the earth is typically around 3% nickel. Um, tainite and camasite, which are the two most typical kinds of meteoric iron, um, have a nickel mass of at least 5% going up to like 65%. And cobalt is hardly present at all in telluric iron, um, not to mention telluric iron is super duper rare. There's really only one major deposit on the planet, and it's in Greenland. So like oh. 5,000 years ago, getting iron from Greenland to Egypt would have been like a, even more miraculous than finding <laughs> it in a meteor. You know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> perhaps that is the great mystery is like if there is any of this stuff out there. But so these, this French researcher, he did this analysis and all of the knickknacks that were listed um, were in fact meteoric iron. But where does meteoric iron even come from? Because most meteors aren't just iron that floats down to earth. Um, but the gist is when planets or celestial bodies form, nickel scoots its way to the molten iron core, kind of like earth, like we have a molten iron core. Um, so there isn't a ton of nickel on the surface, but there is in the center. And meteorites happen sometimes when these like, you know, budding planets or celestial bodies go boom and in a big way. And so that inside sometimes comes outside and comes raining down on you know, everybody else. Um, so splattering bits of developing planet goes in every direction. And if those materials happen to come from the core, then they're bound to hold a decent amount of iron with this high levels of nickel and cobalt. And this metal that falls down from the heavens is already in the me metal state. So it's ready to be forged into beads, daggers, whatever, you know, whatever makes you happy um, <laughs> versus undergoing like reduction of iron ore and like all of the complicated, hot, sweaty science of smelting. Um, and so while meteorites hit like the earth a ton, of, they hit the earth all the time. It's not that big of a deal. Thousands of them end up on our planetary doorstep every year, according to one 2020 study, and hardly any of them are noticeable, iron-filled or catastrophe-inducing. Sorry, dinosaurs. Um, and <laughs> New Scientist estimates that out of the 63,000 meteorites we found and noticed, so the ones that we have spotted, 6% are iron-rich. So the rest are just cool space rocks. So not that meteorites are like a super rare occurrence, but it's pretty, pretty rare that they are going to be iron rich enough that you could, you know, turn it into cool stuff. So space iron tools, um, they're rare beyond rare. And thus far, we only found like 55 examples and they've all come from 22 different sites across the globe. Um, and one of them is a re relatively recent find. Um, and this is the one that kind of led me down this rabbit hole, which Yay! Um, but it's a 1.5 inch long, 2.9 gram arrowhead that was discovered in the 19th century in a late Bronze Age lake dwelling community called Morgan in Switzerland. And so very, very recently, scientists found this in like the back of like the Bern History Museum or something. And they did some analysis and they're like, oh, okay, this has got to be meteoric iron. Um, and there's like a miniature weirdest thing story inside this weirdest thing story. So. This is the Little Arrows weird story. So the settlement of Morgan is located five miles from where the Twannenberg meteorite struck the Earth 150,000 years ago. So five miles away, there's a meteorite land, Kapow. But as weird as it is, this is not the meteorite that made the iron that ended up in this little arrow. So five, <laughs> five miles away from where this little thing was found was a giant meteorite. 
But after some analysis, the authors found that the arrowhead itself was made up of 8.3% nickel, which is twice as much as the Twanberg meteorite. Um, it also is made up of a high content of geranium and a low concentration of aluminum-26, which hints that the meteorite it came from had to be huge, like two tons yeah. at least. And so three such meteorites have hit Europe, one in the Czech Republic, one in Spain, and one in Estonia. The authors estimate that the meteorite that could have sourced this rare find is the Kaliharv meteorite, I believe. And it formed a giant crater in the Estonian I island of Sarama around 1500 BCE. So... It just got deposited right there in the middle of the, of the Bronze Age, which is just very fortunate for the Estonians. <laughs> um, and this impact site, which is like an 864-mile journey through modern-day Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, it also suggests that there's a complex trade and transport system that would have been in place during this era, even though this material was so rare. Um, it still, you know, made, it, made quite a little distance. Um, and another cool meteoric iron gadget, obviously, is all the stuff that was buried with King Tut. Um, so he was mummified in 1323 BCE, um, well before iron smelting was commonplace in Egypt, and also well after the first met metallic iron remnants are dated back to from this area. So the first use of metallic iron in Egypt dates back to 3400 BCE, which it predates even the pharaohs and the state of, of Egypt itself. So they were using meteoric iron a really long time ago in Egypt, and they would not figure out how to smelt until much later. But anyway, there's no evidence of smelting iron until like 6th century BCE. So just to show how long a history space iron has in the prehistoric world, it's very, very weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, during King Tut's reign, uh, metallic iron and meteoric iron, all of that, all of that jazz was um, worth more than gold. So it was kind of a flex that he got to be buried with um, his dagger and like a, a I think it was a piece of jewelry and a little headrest. So you know, being buried with space iron was like qu quite the prehistoric flex. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so that's the gist. Um, long before we figured out how to smelt, we were forging. We were forging iron, which is just <laughs> really hilarious to me that we have somehow found a way to make a loophole to the Iron Age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Work smarter, not harder, you know, just go looking for space rocks. Yeah. And just thinking about the rarity, like not only does it need to have the right composition, it needs to land in the right spot on Earth. Like statistically, those chances sound like crazy. Yeah. And it can't be buried. Like I think most right. of the meteor stuff, like because I think the Twanberg was like a little bit under the ground, obviously it had fallen a long time ago. Um, so they're like, yeah, I don't think people were digging these up. Like they just like saw space rock and were like, I bet I can make something cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. And it happened to be the stuff that we still use today to build all our stuff. Wow. So fun. <laughs> That's really cool. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, we're back, and so is leprosy, as you may have noticed in news reports. Um, But seriously, y'all, in August, uh, early August, a case report in the CDC's Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal sounded the alarm on, you guessed it, an emerging infectious disease, but... Instead of like a new strain of bird flu or some exotic new mosquito-borne parasite, the researchers were warning the medical community about the return of a real throwback, uh, leprosy, more accurately known as Hansen's disease. That is the correct medical terminology these days. Apparently, cases in the Southeast have doubled over the last decade, and Central Florida has had a disproportionate share of reported cases, uh, 81% of the 159 cases in 2020, to be exact. So truly disproportionate. We're not talking a a slight bump. No. Um, And to such an extent that the researchers think that uh, Hansen's disease, aka leprosy, may now be endemic in central Florida, uh, which means there is a consistent ongoing presence of the disease as opposed to occasional outbreaks when someone brings in from somewhere else, which is what the U.S. thought its relationship with Hansen's disease was like these days. But uh, not anymore. So we got to get with the program. Um, so Similar to news reports on cases of the plague, which, yes, people still get, um, this one set off a lot of, like, frantic headlines about, like, quote, biblical diseases being back on the rise. Um, And Hansen's disease is, like, probably the most commonly referenced and least understood infectious disease in history. Uh, So I wanted to take some time today to talk about how it got that way and, like, what the facts are, Um, because, yes, you should care that this uh, previously sort of eliminated infectious disease is possibly endemic again in the U.S., Uh, but also it never went away. Uh, Lots of people have been getting this disease around the world every year, forever, and uh, it is actually much less scary than most people think, and there's a lot of stigma around it, and there shouldn't be. So the facts. Yes, Hansen's disease, which is caused by the bacteria, Mycobacterium leprae. And then also there's a new one uh, a few years ago that they found uh, called Mycobacterium uh, lepromatosis, but it's all the same. It's not like this is like a scary new bacterium that's doing different things. Um, It is contagious. But it is extremely hard to catch. Uh, We aren't even exactly sure how it's transmitted because we know that casual contact, like on the order of sitting next to someone on public transportation or shaking hands with them, is not enough to transmit it. Um, It's been called a wimp of a pathogen by some experts because it dies pretty much instantly once it's outside the body. Um, which, of course, many people know from conversations around uh, like flu transmission and COVID transmission, um, that that is often not the case. Uh, But like 
these uh, leprosy bacteria, once they're out of a host, they're like basically done for. Um, so you don't have to worry about like touching surfaces. Uh, and it's possible that the bacteria spreads through droplets from coughs and sneezes. That's like the prevailing theory. But in any case, it seems like you only run the risk of catching it from someone if you have like really prolonged close contact. Um, also, side note, you can catch leprosy from touching or eating an infected armadillo. Um, the nine-banded armadillo is is known to carry the disease. Uh, humans are actually thought to have transmitted it to armadillos about 500 years ago. So that's on us. Oh my um, gosh. It's, are the red armadillos in Florida like okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I, I don't know how the armadillos in Florida are doing specifically, but it is like among the species. I think I remember seeing that there's that like 20% of the population has it. Oh wow. Um, but yeah, but um, I think because their lifespans are shorter, and I'll get into it in a second, this bacteria grows really slowly. So I think it tends to be less of an issue symptomatically for them. Um, but I'm not an armadillo scientist. Uh, so red squirrels also actually were recently found to carry it too. Um, and it's thought that maybe the uh, frenzied trade for their furs during medieval times in Europe may have fueled uh, an epidemic uh, at that time. And back to transmission, uh, don't eat armadillos, which is a side note. <laughs> there but, you go. Uh, even if you're in close contact with a person or armadillo with Hansen's disease, you are extremely unlikely to contract it because 95% of people who are exposed do not become infected. Um, it seems like only about 5% of the population is actually susceptible to infection with this bacteria. Um, most people's immune systems are able to just brush them off. Um, so obviously, like being immunocompromised may uh, factor in, uh, but there also seems to be a genetic factor. So um, certain genetic variations seem to make people more susceptible and probably around 5% of the population has them. Um, and so what's interesting is that that means it can seem to sort of run in families, which led to a some of the confusion around uh, what this illness was and how it was transmitted. Uh, but that's just because family members are more likely to share the trait of being susceptible to it. So then if they also happen to be in a situation where they're exposed to the bacteria, then you'll see multiple family members um, becoming ill. And... Even if you are susceptible and you are exposed, the bacteria grows so slowly that it can take years or decades for you to develop symptoms. So you may be starting to guess that like all of this combined to create an illness that seemed like very mysterious in its ways. She moves in mysterious ways, leprosy. And um, I will explain in a little bit how that helps contribute to like our absolute like runaway stigma around this disease. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh no, I pet armadillos all the time. <laughs> I live in Central Florida. What do I do? Um, here's what to look out for. The first noticeable signs of Hansen's disease. Uh, it's often like a development of a pale or pink colored, um, like patchy rash on the skin. And usually the telltale sign that it's Hansen's disease and not some other skin rash is that uh, those bits of skin will be insensitive to temperature or pain. Um, so contrary to like a lot of sort of pop culture 
uh, portrayals. There isn't. It's it's as far as conditions that give you skin involvement go. It's like not particularly gruesome. There's not. You don't have bulbous, you know, yeah. oozing things. Though obviously, if you do, you still deserve respect and compassion and love. But just saying, Hanson's does not do that. <laughs> you get this scaly rash and um, it, it can be numb. And, you know, the there's kind of this classic um, thing associated with Hanson's disease, the, the loss of fingers and toes. And that is true, but it's actually not the disease itself. It's It's not like it eats away at the tissue. What happens is that it tends to cause nerve damage and you have that insensitivity to pain and heat. Um, and if that progresses without treatment, um, people become really prone to small injuries um, and wounds that cause infections, very similar to like severe or untreated diabetes can lead to um, some really severe foot problems because you just don't have sensitivity in your foot. Um, so it is quite common for there to be like some eventually um, pretty gruesome tissue loss, but it's a secondary effect, not uh, the bacterium itself, um, which I did not know until today. So <laughs> that's a thing I have learned. Um, luckily, the disease is really easily treated with antibiotics um, and you stop being contagious as little contagion as there is. You stop being contagious at all within like 72 hours of starting treatment. So this is like as far as um, our ability to like treat and contain uh, things that historically were scary go, it's like pretty clutch. Um, of course, we still don't like to see diseases that we treat with antibiotic spreading because where there is always the concern that um, increased antibiotic resistance is going to become a problem. So I would still say like, don't be casual about <laughs> the uh, recurrence of perhaps endemic Hansen's disease, but like, don't be weird about it. It's just an infection. There's nothing nothing to worry about other than getting antibiotics and calling your doctor. Um, so how did we get this overblown idea of what Hansen's disease slash leprosy is? Um, our oldest physical evidence of the disease dates back to 4,000 years ago, uh, a skeleton found in India that showed signs of um, bone lesions that can occur if the disease is left untreated. Again, this is uh, similar to uh, syphilis, you know, very common STI on the rise. You know, syphilis absolutely is a huge public health problem if it's not treated and contained. But also it's nothing to be ashamed of or terrified of. Like if you get it, you get antibiotics, you're going to be OK. Um, but if you don't, then you're going to be really not OK. Similarly, you know, we have this archaeological evidence that like before antibiotics were an option, the disease would progress and it would actually affect the bone. So that's why we're able to find it, you know, in the archaeological record. What's interesting is that earlier than that, there are lots of historical references to leprosy, but it's likely that those descriptions refer to like all kinds of conditions that affected the skin. The word leprosy just comes from the Greek for like scaly rash, basically. Oh um, and yeah, they're actually, when I was writing my book, Been There, Done That, Arousing History of Sex, buy it wherever you buy books. Um, <laughs> I talked about how Hildegard von Bingen, my fave, uh, talked about a leprosy that only affected the like 
lusty, sinful people, which mm-hmm. was syphilis. So like a lot of the really horrific, like, oh my gosh, this thing is super contagious and it's gross uh, stuff was probably talked about syphilis, which again, also isn't gross, but different from Hansen's disease. Um, so there's a lot of confusion in the historical record and there's a lot of um, a lot of the things that uh, we evoke when we talk about leprosy, we're possibly talking about something completely different. The like Leviticus verse about isolating people, which by the way, only isolated them for seven days. So that's still like, I don't think you should run away with that and be like, wow, how gross. That seems a pretty, like seven, pretty measured response. Yeah. Seven days. <laughs> like just take a little week. Yeah. Just rest up. <laughs> yeah. Hide in the cave, find some yeah. scrolls, you know. Um, but anyway, point being, like, when we can't look at something, like, in the physical archaeological record, um, it's really hard to date back, like, the actual history of how people talked about disease because there were a lot of things that were conflated. Understandably, they had no germ theory. They were just like, there are five categories of thing. This is the skin one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, fair enough. And, of course, some of those diseases would have been very contagious, Um And so we have this conflation of many diseases, the lack of certainty about how and when someone might contract Hansen's disease specifically, uh, because, again, it can take like 20 years for symptoms to emerge, similar to syphilis, really. Um, So it's like very hard, especially uh, sort of like pre-modern epidemiology to like contact trace your um, Hansen's disease. And again, like because of this genetic component, sometimes it would seem like a whole family got it. Um, So that uncertainty, I think, just really um, bred uh, a a spookiness around the disease. Um, And that stigma seems to have really like peaked in Western Europe during the Middle Ages um, when (laughs) people with Hansen's disease were sometimes said to literally be doing their time in purgatory while still alive. Oh, Um, Oh, my heavens. Right. Though that was actually kind of the more positive take because (laughs) otherwise other people were like, well, they're being punished. Like this is. Oh, okay. Like they did something to make this happen. And if you're in purgatory, at least you maybe have a shot. Like it's right. Well, yeah. Yeah. At this time, the the prevailing belief was that everyone had to do some time in purgatory. Um, It was it was not a good time to. Uh, to have a soul, the Middle <laughs> Ages in Western Europe. Um, and so there were some people who were actually like, oh, like this is actually like a very, it, it was almost like a, like a suffering of saints kind of thing. We're like, wow, they get to get it over and done with while they're on earth. So um, they were often kind of like banished to the edge of town to like beg for alms. But there was also kind of this, this like industry of people like giving money to uh people who had Hansen's disease as a way of like kind of um piggybacking onto their purgatory finishing oh my <laughs> so point, like, their, uh, <laughs> their their heaven points if yeah you exactly something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah yeah <laughs> something like that um what a time to be alive so we don't know for sure like where the first place was that they isolated people with Hansen's disease specifically but definitely they were doing that in the middle ages um in europe And um, that continued uh, in the U.S. It was only in 1975 that um, policies that isolated people affected with Hansen's disease were disbanded. Um, Until then, that was the U.S. policy. 
Um, and there are still many countries where uh, the disease remains pretty prevalent, where people are um, sometimes like legally discriminated against. Uh, and so that's a big problem. And I will circle back to that in a second. But yeah, in the U.S., we did have um, these like isolated communities uh, in 1865, you know, just a few decades before uh, the U.S. came barreling in, uh, Hawaii introduced laws that allowed for the arrest and removal of people uh, with Hansen's disease. And they started isolating them um, on the island of Molokai. And those laws weren't lifted until 1969. So even once Hawaii was officially part of the U.S., again, why would those laws have changed? Because in the U.S. that we also had um, these isolated colonies. Um, so as of 2015, there were still 16 former patients living there because they'd spent their whole lives there. Um, and it was really interesting looking at different articles about the um, the Hansen disease communities on Molokai. Like some of them were painted a very rosy picture of like, obviously this was bad, but they lived on this beautiful island and they built community and they had marriages and they didn't want to leave because they were so happy there. And then other articles that I feel may have been more correct were like, these people knew literally nothing else and had been completely disconnected from their families and so decided to stay, which is not to say some of them didn't like have marriages and have things about their lives that they liked, but still like a an obviously horrific situation. Um, and yeah, before a treatment was found um, in 1951, patients on the U.S. mainland were mostly sent to um, a leprosarium in uh, Louisiana. And uh, it at its peak, it housed uh, about 500 patients. Uh, Molokai had thousands. And yeah, that the Louisiana hospital is also closed, but similar to uh, the community in Molokai, there are people who have not left because they were at that point, like people in their 80s and 90s who had lived there their whole lives. Um, and so, yeah, there are still 200,000 cases of AIDS disease every year around the world. Yeah. And in Brazil, Indi India and Indonesia, especially, there are um, a pretty high number of cases. Uh, and it it's like anything else, you know, it people who uh, don't have access to um, healthcare and, you know, don't have access to antibiotics. Um, and also just when there is stigma, people are less likely to get uh, tested and screened and treated for um, what is actually a very easy to treat disease. Um, so stigma sucks. It's very bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know what else to say. Um, I, but Anyway, yeah, U.S. listeners, especially Central Florida listeners, um, keep an eye out, but also don't be a dick about it. Um, this is just a bacteria. You're probably not even susceptible to it. And if you are, like, honestly, believe for you, 5%, that's rare. That's Just you're go special. to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, and go to the doctor. Just go <laughs> to the doctor. Um, so that's that's it. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Gosh. Oh my gosh. All, all that stigma for something that is just like so hard to transmit, so hard to, it's, it's really, I'm, that's like, that was shocking. You know, I thought it would, I always assumed it was more like the plague, you know, right. Rapid, yeah, rapid, yeah. rapid, rapid. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, people, um, any public health policies that are like based on what people in the middle ages thought generally not great. Oh yeah. <laughs> this one in particular, 
really, really time for us to reexamine um, our relationship with uh, with leprosy. So nice. Love it. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Your words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we're back. And uh, Laura, I am, um, I'm not going to say I can't wait to hear <laughs> what you have to say because I'm a little scared. But yeah. uh, please tell us more about hair removal during the empire. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's it's perfect that this is for the summer because I mean, especially <laughs> if you're a female identifying person, summer is, oh, wait, did I get that patch on my legs with my razor season you know is, my, is this is this part shaved okay it's a paint um so obviously body hair is basically it is about as human human as you can get it is part of what makes us mammals um we've evolved from um other animals that had completely covered bodies completely covered with hair um, and even a study out as recently as this January found that the genes that control for a complete body of hair are not actually gone. They're just kind of currently muted. That's why there's lots of variation. Um, we lost the, the full covering about a million years ago and studying how that pattern happens now can actually help scientists treat baldness in the future. Um, so it's obviously something that we've been fussing out probably since we, you know, first emerged from that primordial ooze. <laughs> um, and fussing about with our wallets as well. Um, 
Fortune says that um, the body hair removal industry was worth over $4 billion in 2019, and it could reach $4.94 billion by 2027. So yeah, people are spending a lot. I, uh, there's a new commercial for, I think it's Venus, but they have a new ad campaign where this like cartoon child raps about how you should say pubic hair. It's not shameful, which is true, but also it's still the dorkiest character I've ever seen. (laughs) I always, every time I watch it, I'm like, I don't want the, like, it's unfair that they are posing the the false premise of if you're uncomfortable with this ad it's because you don't like pubic hair and women and i'm like no it's just a weird ad ad. (laughs) right it's like oh you're uptight if you don't like this but the ad is just kind of strange i've not seen that one and now i'm kind of kind of afraid to turn on the tv Um, but kind of perfect point because like there are a ton of different types of hair removal now. I mean, there's like, there's from lasers to razors, there's waxing, there's threading, which isn't terrible, but kind of along the same lines. Um, but that obviously was not always the case. Technology has changed. Um, you know, we've just kind of evolved. Now, uh, back in the spring, a recent archaeological dig in the UK uncovered over 50 tweezers that date back to the Roman occupation. And they were used to tweeze armpit hair. Um, how do we know? How do we know? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, we know because it was actually written about by a couple of different philosophers. Great. Um, yeah, we will definitely get to that. Um, I mean, it's kind of like truly a new meaning to the term pain is beauty. And I mean, come on, it's definitely, that would be a great way to get me to talk if I had some state secrets. Um <laughs> Tweezers just kind of in general, like today's, they were fa- they were more safe than some other options and they were fairly inexpensive, but just like today, not pain-free. <laughs> These were found at um, the Roxeter Roman City, which is a site in um, central England. Um, and it was at one point this thriving urban, urban, urban location that was about the size of Pompeii, Italy. Fortunately for them, they did not suffer the same fate as Pompeii. Um, and it's also no stranger to these cosmetic finds. Um, their other tweezers were found in 2019 and also a metal ear cleaning tool that kind of resembles our modern day cotton swab or if you're brand specific, a Q-tip, um, which also I, I kind of would like maybe a little bit of cotton metal going in Q-tip. there. That metal Q-tip. That sounds like a really <laughs> fun way to puncture an eardrum. Um, you know, yeah, that was kind of a weird one. Um, this town was also once the fourth largest town in Roman Britain or Britannia, and it was um, a legionary fortress. It was basically one of those like Western expansions of the Roman Empire, um, and it dates back to about the 90s CE, and people lived there until about the 5th century CE. Um, it all it was home to a giant forum where laws were made, a market, multi-purpose offices, community center, shopping center, bathhouse. So basically, I'm thinking like, you know, an Ulta or a Sephora Um, And these were basically places just kind of like Ulta and Sephora where you could purchase cosmetics, but also socialize, get get the news, as it's pretty well known that Romans did care a great deal about cleanliness and public image. Um, It wasn't as, for lack of better words, it wasn't as dirty a time as the Middle Ages. There was something that kind of got lost a little bit there as far as valuing, um, valuing image. 
Now, Rachel, to your point, <laughs> this hair plucking, it was so painful that a Roman author and politician Seneca once wrote a letter complaining <laughs> about the noise coming from public baths, noting, and I quote, the skinny armpit hair plucker whose cries are shrill so as to draw people's attention and never stop, except when he is doing his job and making someone else shriek for him. Oh, Yes. Don't know who that like filler and shrieker would have been. But yeah, that was in a writing um, from Seneca. And to kind of complicate this, um, that process was also usually performed by slaves. Fun times. Now, this ear, all of this cleanliness was actually fairly advanced for their time. Um, these communal baths, toiletry kits, earwax ear cleaners, um, they were definitely something that Romans viewed as putting them a little bit above barbarians. Um, and the reason for doing this went a little bit deeper depending upon your gender. Um, it's not, it wasn't so much skin deep. There were some cultural and there were some religious reasons for it. Um, namely, to, you know, for men, it was to help set them apart from barbarians. Um, maybe, maybe the Germanic tribes, if you're familiar with that opening scene of Gladiator, that sort of thing. Um, and according to um, Viren Swami, um, the Romans didn't really do it to look beautiful. They did it again for those cultural and religious reasons. And men removed it as a sign of purity, which I found kind of interesting because we associate like that pure hairless skin with women nowadays. But that's def that definitely was not the case um, in Roman times. And mm. again, that's continued to evolve. That's kind of what's interesting about looking at things like hair is it has evolved over time. Um, a lot of people would have been too poor at this time to afford like the more expensive toiletry kits, but those tweezers, those anybody probably anybody could have gotten one of them. Oh, oh um, no, <laughs> you, you know, like so. If you really do value that purity, you're gonna kind of, and you don't have. You, if you value that purity and don't necessarily have the money, you're gonna want some of those tweezers. Um, the hair removal for women was definitely a little bit more like the standards of today although men seem to do it more um the site curator from the rocks from the Roxeter site where these tweezers were found said that you mostly saw it in a lot of sports like wrestling um there was a social expectation that the men engaging in exercise that required minimal clothing would have prepared themselves by also removing this body hair um you know it's kind of he the uh, site curator um, was named is named uh, Cameron Moffat, and he said, you know, it was it was interesting for them to see how this removal of body hair again after millennia for everyone. Although, luckily, modern methods are a little bit less excruciating. Um, and then for women, like I said, it was a little bit more. It did have more to do with beauty and purity. Um, they wanted it to get a man basically that's the part that hasn't changed so while the female idea of body hair has changed a little bit more or, or the female idea has stayed the same that male idea has kind of um cameron moffat again that same site curator said that there are some writings about how you know if you need you need to keep on your body hair um to get a man to like you which again hasn't changed so yes tweezers that were specifically used by slaves to pluck body to pluck armpit hair that were so loud that philosophers and statesmen wrote about it wow yeah <laughs> much to unpack <laughs> so and so I, I just think unpack. like things like this are these discoveries are just 
amazing because like we find battlefield stuff all the time and we remember like the blood of the battlefield but like there was blood in the bathroom too and learning about those types of things through history are just like and, and kind and like from these kind of cool archaeological digs are just like they're fascinating because it's like all of these fun daily things that still drive us crazy in 2023 were in 90 ce as well <laughs> yeah i love that people change so much all the time and also uh not at all. Not yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, some great stuff today. I love um, thinking about not just how beauty standards have changed, but how our, like, methods have changed. I don't know. I feel like we we talk a lot about, like, sort of uh, more recent historical eras where people, like, put poison on their faces. Yeah. Etc. Yeah. And um, I don't. I don't think we talk enough about like uh, the Roman Empire, like ripping hair out of their armpits. We've always been giving one. ourselves a hard time to like look <laughs> yeah. quote unquote good. Like it has never been great. <laughs> you know, it's. I think we're also like quick to say, oh, it's TikTok's fault or social media's fault. It's like these people didn't have TikTok and social media, and they still <laughs> had these ridiculous body standards that you know their wrestlers needed to be hairless. You know, like that's the, it's still like, you know, even, yeah, even without those standards that we compare ourselves to, they still exist. They're kind of, they <laughs> seem like they're pretty part of being human. Yeah, it's true. Just what the standard is changes. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. always going to be somebody being like, this is what you should look like. Um, this has been a well, blast from the past. I've, I've yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a blast from the past. I'm sure glad I do not live in a time when, um, People were writing about how loudly I screamed when I tweezed my armpits. Um, and I love antibiotics. Yeah. Right? And also, oh. <laughs> and relatedly, probably. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Like, it, somebody definitely, people definitely died of from, like, ingrown hair related. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my Absolutely. Wow. I bet they die of them in modern era. You know what I mean? You can, yeah. You could have that sophisticated Roman plumbing, but if, you know, some sort of bacteria gets into that plumbing, oh, uh -oh. yeah, not, not good, not good. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, Tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app 
or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 